this year comes with a packed docket of important healthcare court cases, litigation about drug prices, abortion bans, gender-affirming care, and of course, the old standby, the Affordable Care Act. Many of these cases have the potential to change Americans' cost and access to care and restrict the power of federal health agencies. Today, we run through the cases we're watching in 2024. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Health policy experts are keeping close tabs on the courts this year. Judges are ready to weigh in on health policies, new ones like Medicare's power to negotiate drug prices, and old like Obamacare's insurance rules. The ramifications of these decisions, some on politically charged issues, are especially important during an election year. Reporter-producer Alex Olgan joins me to talk through the details of these cases. Hey, Alex. Hi, Dan. So what's the first case that you've got for us here? Okay, well, it's actually nine cases, but they're all about (laughs) the same thing. (laughs) Drug makers want to stop Medicare from using its new power to negotiate drug prices for 66 million older Americans. Congress gave Medicare this authority back in 2022, and the agency has spent the last year and a half coming up with the rules. And Dan, basically, the pharmaceutical companies are trying to shut down the program before it even starts. AstraZeneca joining the likes of Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Bristol-Myers, as well as not-for-profit AARP in the battle over drug pricing. Got it. So, Alex, what what are drug makers like Merck, AstraZeneca, and Janssen actually claiming in these cases? Saying that being forced to negotiate drug prices with Medicare is, quote, tantamount to extortion, In short, they're claiming this new program is unconstitutional. They're saying how Medicare has picked the drugs to negotiate and the rules around this policy just exceeds the authority Congress gave them. They argue the program is really government price setting dressed up as negotiation. Merck even called the program a, quote, gun to the head of pharmaceutical companies. And what's the federal government's defense? The government is saying that negotiating prices is really just business as usual. Medicare has set rates for doctor's visits, labs, and hospital stays for decades. And the government says if companies find these rates too low, they can just stop selling drugs to Medicare. Setting the overheated rhetoric aside, Alex, what have courts said about these arguments? Well, we only have one ruling so far. It's from a federal judge in Ohio, and he agreed with the government, saying no matter how important Medicare is to a company's business, drug makers are not compelled. They don't have to sell to the program. Zach Barron is a co-director of the Health Policy and the Law Initiative at the O'Neill Institute at Georgetown Law School. He says drug makers seem to be trying to leverage this view among some judges that federal bureaucrats just have too much power. I think the general headwinds that we're seeing is that the Supreme Court is more hostile to giving agencies as much authority to carry out these programs without the close eye of the courts. That's where I do think those headwinds could certainly create some issues in the drug negotiation cases. Basically, Zach says drug makers' best hope may be riling up judges' concerns over the so-called administrative state. And how are these other cases looking? These cases are in the early stages, so it's hard to read the tea leaves. Even if the first wave of cases are unsuccessful, the lobbying group Pharma warns more lawsuits may be on the way. 
And final note on this, Dan, these negotiations are expected to save Medicare close to $100 billion over the next decade and patients substantial amounts of money. So if judges agree with drug makers, that means the federal government and older Americans will be stuck with stubbornly high drug prices. All right, Alex. So we'll keep watching this. What's the next case that you're bringing here? Believe it or not, Dan, it is the Affordable Care Act. More than a decade's worth of litigation on this law. My first story as a healthcare reporter, Alex, was actually about the lawsuit, the first lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act. Oh, wow. Well, your career is coming full circle here, Dan. As of, <laughs> as of September 2020, the ACA was the most challenged law in all of American history. Wait, are you serious? Oh, yes. I am not kidding. More than 2,000 cases have been filed challenging just this one law. Damn, Alex. So look, I know the Supreme Court ruled three times on different parts of the law, including the mandate to buy insurance, the tax penalty, contraception. What is this one about? Okay, so it's actually about one of the most popular parts of the law. It's the provision that gives us preventive care for free. Things like vaccines, mammograms, and medication to prevent HIV called PrEP. Again, all for free. The idea is let's make it super easy to get the care that everyone knows has a really positive impact on people's health. Now, a Texas business, Braidwood Management, is challenging this rule. Braidwood calls itself a Christian business and says this rule forces them to pay for some PrEP. And that violates their religious beliefs about sexuality. Last year, a federal court in Texas agreed. Now, the Biden administration has appealed, and the courts have put any widespread changes on hold, at least until the appeals court hears the case. But there's been no date set for that yet. Okay, so my colon cancer screening, still free? For now. But you know how we've been talking about agency authority? I do. This case raises that question as well. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services picks experts to decide which medical care qualifies to be free. And one of the arguments is that those experts actually lack the power to make decisions because they were not confirmed by Congress. Alex, this sounds pretty technical, getting into whether these experts have the proper authority or not. Yeah, I know it sounds weedy, but if the court sides with Braidwood, there are very real implications for patients, doctors, and Congress. Going forward, anytime this group of experts, called the United States Preventive Services Task Force, decides a new kind of medication should be free, Congress would have to pass a law saying so. You mean the same Congress that struggles to pass the budget bills? Right, exactly. Legal experts I've spoken to, Dan, say this case could have even bigger ramifications than that. If courts limit agency authority, like with the task force, Zach Barron from Georgetown says it could gum up the federal government's ability to function. Think of COVID-19 and think of the importance of, of having you know HHS and others to be able to make sure that people are able to get the treatment they need to, to respond to evolving situations. Right now, this case is before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans. But the people I'm talking to expect that it could end up before the Supreme Court. Another potential chance for the justices to weigh in on Obamacare. After the break, we dive into two abortion cases on the Supreme Court's docket and the debate over gender-affirming care.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We're back talking about some of the most high-profile health policy court cases this year. Reporter producer Alex Olgan joins me with more about the fight over regulating two controversial types of medical care, abortions and gender-affirming care for kids. First abortion, right after the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to an abortion in June of 2022, conservative lawmakers focused on banning the procedure. Today, there are 14 states with total bans and 11 others that block the procedure at certain points in pregnancy. Alex, so that's the background. I'm curious, how has this fight over abortion access evolved and shifted now that we're in 2024? Well, Dan, as you mentioned, over the last two years, there has been lots of legislation focused on at what point in pregnancy the bans would take effect. Should it be six weeks, 10 weeks, 15 weeks? And also for what kinds of exceptions, like for instances of rape or to keep the mom alive? The fight now has moved to how these exceptions actually work in practice. Lori Sobel is the Associate Director of Women's Health Policy at KFF. The question in states is, How close to death do you need to be to get an abortion? That's a question that stops you in your tracks. Yeah, Dan, it's terrifying. And as we move into this more practical phase, when these laws are being tested, we need to remember these exemptions were written by lawmakers, not doctors and nurses. So we're seeing instances now when clinicians are unsure of what to do, how to care for pregnant people in medical distress. Based on reports and these court cases, doctors and nurses are scared and confused. And it makes sense. I mean, the penalties for not following the law are big. You could lose your medical license and even possibly prison time. In some cases, Dan, women and doctors are asking the courts, judges, what health problems count under the exceptions. Lori says the doctors really want assurance that the courts will let doctors have the last word. They want deference to their medical judgment. And anything short of that will not allow doctors and hospitals to comfortably provide care without fear of prosecution. Adding in one more wrinkle here, Dan, doctors and even hospitals also have to think about federal law. Yeah, right. Like the federal law says providers must stabilize patients in emergencies. Right. And the Biden administration has come out saying if that means a person needs an abortion, providers must give them an abortion. Even in states with these bans? Well, so that's the thing. One of the two cases in front of the Supreme Court this year asks that very question. Does federal law supersede state law? And Dan, this is not hypothetical. CMS determined last May that two hospitals, one in Missouri and another in Kansas, refused to provide an abortion to one woman who was at risk of losing her life. That's a violation of federal law. Exactly. This woman, Melissa Farmer, had gone into premature labor, meaning her fetus would definitely die and she could die. But because doctors in both hospitals detected the baby's heartbeat, they declined to perform the procedure. What did the woman do? 
She ended up going to Illinois to get the abortion. Lori Sobel from KFF said these scenarios are just antithetical to practicing medicine. I mean, can you imagine any other situation in which you're told by your doctor, come back when you're sicker? We know you're going to get sicker, but you're not sick enough right now for us to prevent you from getting sicker. So, Dan, we're seeing instances like this pop up more and more because of these bans. And why is the Supreme Court getting involved, Alex? Because one federal appeals court ruled Idaho must follow federal law in these emergencies, and a different federal appeals court ruled the opposite for Texas. So now the Supreme Court will decide which law doctors and hospitals must follow. It's interesting, Alex. When that Dobbs decision came down, Justice Alito wrote about how the ruling puts the question of abortion squarely in the hands of states. Yet here we are back at the Supreme Court with two abortion cases this year. And what's this second one about? Essentially, how easily people can get mifeprestone, the so-called abortion pill. The ramifications of this one could be huge, Dan, because more than half of abortions are done with medication. Okay, so what are the plaintiffs, a group of anti-abortion doctors in Texas, arguing? They say the FDA ignored safety concerns when the agency made it easier to get the drug over the last eight years. They did things like make it easier to get a prescription after just one telehealth visit or even uh, have it delivered in the mail. Okay, Alex, as you're saying, these doctors from Texas want to make it harder to get the drugs Now, earlier this year, lower courts agreed with these doctors and second-guessed the FDA's safety judgment. Has that ever happened before? No, this is a first. I mean, the FDA's approval has been considered this gold standard. And Dan, more than 20 years of real-world evidence show that mifeprestone is safe. Nearly 6 million women have taken it in the U.S., and less than 1% reported serious complications. So the Supreme Court decision will determine if current rules for mifeprestone stay or if we go back to the more restrictive ones? That's right. And they're also considering this bigger question of can doctors even go to court to overrule FDA decisions? This is the question that experts like Lori at KFF worry about because it could theoretically open the door to people challenging all kinds of drugs, maybe even common painkillers. More likely it won't be Tylenol, it will be PrEP. It's highly effective and it's been a game changer in terms of changing the spread of HIV. And it's definitely in the crosshairs of cultural wars, much in the way that medication abortion is. Okay, so that's abortion. Let's tee up another kind of medical care that's part of this culture war, gender-affirming care for kids. Now, Over the last few years, at least 23 states have passed laws limiting or banning gender-affirming care for minors. We know families and doctors have gone to state courts around the country to block these bans. Alex, what's the landscape like out there? So these bans prohibit things like medications or surgeries for transgender people under 18. But some of these state laws actually go further. Idaho and Alabama actually make it a felony to offer this care. Now, for a little context, about a third of all transgender kids live in states with these bans. That's about 100,000 people. And what are the states arguing? Well, many lawmakers have talked about the dangers of getting this care, arguing minors are too young to make these decisions and could one day regret it. 
Texas Governor Greg Abbott has gone even further. He directed state officials to label it child abuse if parents let their kids get this care. But parents and professional groups like the American Medical Association and American Academy of Pediatrics say this care is necessary and actually not getting it could even harm kids' mental health. Alex, I've heard about families either traveling out of state or even moving to get these treatments. So what arguments are families making to challenge the bans? Transgender minors and their families argue these bans are actually a form of sex discrimination because they only ban the treatments for people who are transgender, whereas these states allow the exact same medications for other medical problems, like conditions with the ovaries or birth defects. Judges in Arkansas and Idaho found that argument compelling. And how are states defending themselves? States like Kentucky and Tennessee say that since their laws apply equally to people born as male and female, they are not discriminating on sex. Katie Iyer is a professor at Rutgers Law School and an expert in anti-discrimination law. She says that reasoning flies in the face of how courts have viewed equal rights laws for decades. I think that argument relies on a sort of separate but equal rationale, the idea that it equally burdens both groups. But that argument is simply wrong. Katie says these are the same separate but equal arguments that states used back in the 1950s to defend school segregation. But appellate judges agreed with that reasoning and let bans stand in Alabama, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Got it. Both families and the federal government have asked the Supreme Court to hear the case. We'll see if that happens. Right, Dan. But there's one more thing that I want to point out before we finish this topic. Katie told me that these cases could end up being huge for not just healthcare access, but the civil rights of transgender people more broadly. I think it is very clear that we are at a moment where the courts are very much involved in deciding the constitutional rights of the transgender community. And that would be clearly significant to all of the other discriminatory laws that have recently been enacted targeting transgender people. Basically, if the courts side with states that have the bans, the thinking is that could undermine civil rights protections for transgender people. We've already seen some states limit health insurance coverage for transgender adults, and we've all heard about the state laws barring kids from using bathrooms or joining sports teams that match their identity. These are the kinds of threats to people's civil rights that we're talking about, Dan. Alex, thanks for your reporting on this. You're welcome. Certainly a busy year for judges. A national poll from KFF shows Issues like healthcare prices, the future of Medicare and Medicaid, and abortion rights are among the top 10 things on voters' minds. And it sounds like some of these decisions, some may be controversial, could be decided right around the election. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. The Biden administration has released new rules designed to keep racial bias out of artificial intelligence in healthcare. You have to start with transparency. You have to start with making available the information so that people can see that there are actually issues here. Next time on Tradeoffs, racial bias and AI, recorded live in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on whichever podcasting app you use. NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. 
The Tradeoffs team is producers Alex Olgan and Ryan Levy, editors Kate Cahan and Deborah Franklin, executive director Jessica Silverman, marketing director Catherine Dougal, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, with help from Kate Seepy, Kelly Osmondson, and Cedric Wilson, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Lucy Stark, Diane Rappaport, and Graham Griffith. Our media partner is SideFX Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, Just Trust, West Health, the California Healthcare Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. Our financial supporters are not involved in any decisions about our journalism, and the views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 